0: This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. With your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes.
1: Good day, everyone, and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode number 568, and joining us is Dr. Jill Krista. We're going to talk about diagnosing and treating mold sickness. Before we do,
2: let's thank our platinum sponsor. IAQ Radio platinum sponsor is John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's j-o-n-d-o-n.com. I also want to thank our gold sponsors: Particles Plus, Healthy
1: Indoors Magazine, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, and AEML Inc. Laboratory. And of course, our association sponsors: CIRI, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute, the Indoor Air Quality Association, and the Restoration Industry Association.
0: And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to C Zlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia
3: Question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Adam Lesko. Green Environments Consulting Inc. in Springfield, Massachusetts, and Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental in Dayton, Ohio, who combined uh, to identify 6.6 gigatons as the quantity of concrete consumed in China between 2011 and 2013. Comparatively, that's more than the US used in the entire 20th century. The IQ radio trivia question for today. Friday, December 20, 2019, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's IAQ trivia question. What event led to the first use of the term mycotoxin? Back to you, Joe. All right, Cliff, very
1: appropriate for today. We've got Dr. Jill. Dr. Jill Krista is an author, nationally recognized speaker on neuroinflammatory conditions such as brain injury, mold illness, and autoimmune encephalitis. She earned her naturopathic doctor degree with honors from the National University of Naturopathic Medicine in Portland, Oregon. And in 2012, She completed the physician training program with the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. For over a decade, she was the director and practicing member of two integrative clinics offering naturopathic medicine, integrative medicine, acupuncture, chiropractic, physical therapy, craniosacral therapy, that one's a tough one for me, and and massage. Welcome, Dr. Jill. Thank
4: you. Thanks so much for having me here. I feel very lucky to be able to share with you guys.
1: Great to have you. I, I almost made it through your bio um, with pr- correct pronunciations, um, uh, and, and then he got me on the uh, last one. I, what is that? Uh, Natural Craniosacral therapy. What
4: is that? Yeah, it's basically where it's like gentle chiropractic to the brain and the spine, um, oh, okay. the, the sacrum, so the lower part of the, the spine and the brain, and it the idea is that it keeps the the spinal fluid flowing and helping the brain drain um, as it gets used.
1: Interesting. I could probably use a little bit of that myself here. All right. Well, let's let's get back to the topic for today. Uh, first, I guess you call it naturopathic. I call it naturopathic. You said tomato, tomato. So I'm glad i glad we're both uh, you know correct. I guess on that. How did you get started in the uh, naturopathic medicine world?
4: So when I was in college in Wisconsin, I worked at a really fun hippie store. It's near just a half hour from where I live. Um, they had, I liked to mountain bike at the time. So they had like natural food and herbs and um, I got to ride my mountain bike on the trails and I started working there. And one of the people that uh, worked there was a master herbalist. And uh, when I was behind the desk, people would come up to me and they would ask me, what herbs should I take for this or that. And finally the, the clincher was someone came in and said, I have liver cancer. What herb should I take to get rid of my cancer? And I thought, don't ask me, I don't know. anything." Wow. <laughs> and it made me realize there's a demand for this and it was an interest of mine, but I didn't know how to learn about all of these plants that this woman who I was working for could just pull things off the shelf and make a, make a formula and send people out the door. And I thought, wow, I said, or wouldn't it be amazing if you could become a doctor, that knows about all of these things, and she's like, was right out of the movie. She ran back to her office, brought this big thick binder. And it was full of dust, and set it down. And again, like the movies, you can just hear the whoom, and then <laughs> dust went. And um, a friend of mine at the time owned an herb tincture company, and it was one of those things. She said, "Just open it. There's all these resources to learn." I always wanted to go to one of these schools, but I never could. And I opened Ooh. it up, and the page I opened it up to was my friend's herb company an advertisement for that um that she had clipped out of a magazine and at the bottom of that article about his herb company was a an advertisement for the school that i went to and just like that i made the decision and (laughs) i i think had i done a little more homework i don't know that i would have made the same decision because it's a lot of debt and a lot of work and you know it's medical school so um but i i have never i've never regretted it and never looked back
1: well did you did you do pre-med at at Wisconsin or biology yeah. or, okay. So yeah. you did your pre-med there and then went to Oregon it is for the, the naturopathic.
4: Yeah. So the, in, there are six naturopathic medical schools. So you go with your pre-med done and then you go to these medical schools and you learn, you know, the first two years are pretty much the same as a standard medical school All the anatomy physiology, you do um, cadaver lab and all of these things to learn about the body and, and the the things we know, and then the last two years are the therapeutics. Um, so I did learn s- some of the body things in a more holistic way, where normally that isn't happening in a in a conventional medical school. they're not you don't hear your EENT instructors say, "Now m- remember, this might have to do with something going on with the the tooth. They might have a tooth infection because that's in the dental class, you know, so there was a lot of um, just in a mind, keeping the connections together.
1: You take that holistic approach. We, we teach that when we, when we talk about um, indoor air quality investigations, looking at homes in a holistic manner, and that I, sounds like you, you did the same thing. Um, now, as far as the, the mold end of things, was there much discussion in, in, in your training on mold-related illness?
4: There, there was more than, I think, in a conventional medical model. Uh, we had environmental medicine courses, and so it was taught there. So, I, again, I had that network or that framework that, that told me that mold is definitely a formidable foe. It's, a, it's both an allergic problem and a toxin problem. So I had that foundation that then when I was finally able to identify that the patients in my practice that had mold, I had the foundation to go and know what to look for in the research okay. and know that it's more than an allergy. It's more than a, an allergy problem. And yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, as, as far as, um, how, how did the, I mean did patients naturally come to you because you're an ND with, with mold related issues because they weren't getting, I guess, uh, satisfactory answers or treatment from their, their MD.
4: No, that's the problem with mold, because as Dr. Shoemaker taught that it can affect every system in the body and cause almost any symptom, most of the people that were coming to me had just um, pretty severe, but chronic illness that was vague and no one had an explanation for. And as a naturopathic doctor, you know, you can rule out a lot of the common things. And most of the time when you find the cause, treat the cause... And, you know, I have very motivated patients, which is so fun about being an naturopathic doctor. People come to me knowing they're going to get homework. They're going to get a good diagnostic workup and they're going to get homework. And then they, their job is to get better. Um, not me as some, you know, overarching omnipotent power that I'm going to bestow health on them, you know, and I give them information and identification of the problem and then they get to go do the work. I say get to because I try to frame it positively. Yep. But I mean, these are some serious things they have to do. They have to change lifestyle, diet, when to go to bed at night, when to turn screens off, how to breathe. It's amazing how many people don't know how to breathe. Um, so there are lots of things that I send them home with. And most of the time, the majority of the time, once you identify a food allergy or something in their home or you know something like that that they have power over, they get better. But then I started to attract Lyme disease patients because Wisconsin is a hotbed of Lyme disease. And that's a more complicated condition to deal with. So you have to add some antimicrobials and some herbs. And I had another group that got better once we identified it with Lyme. But then this other set of stuck patients, you know, we had ruled out everything, their thyroid health, their gut health, um, their infection burden, and they're still sick. And in one of those patients, they found toxic black mold in his home. And I started to research a little more because I had that foundation of it's an allergy problem and it's a, you know, it's a spore problem and a mycotoxin problem. Um, I started getting into the research and realizing, wow, mycotoxins, they're, they're really the majority of this condition called mold illness. Yet we're only teaching the CDC defines it as basically spore illness And as I dug into research, I realized, wow, these other Lyme people that aren't getting better, I think they might have mold. And this was before we had mycotoxin testing. And because I'm not shoemaker trained, I didn't have the shoemaker panel, you know, dialed in. I did it through naturopathic means, diagnosis, looking at the, the data points on regular labs that you can look at and identify that mold might be a problem. Started to treat it and, you know, these people responded. So that's how I got to mold. And it was really a slow over a decade long process of now becoming expert in it and known for it in my area where then that's what I always got was the lime mold, you know, pans patients, because that's what I'm kind of known for seeing results in. Um, And that's why I, I wrote the book because I thought, you know, our job in medicine and those of us that do mold is to help people identify when it's mold because most of them don't know that it's mold. Hmm.
1: Interesting, Cliff. Did you have any any follow up? Uh, not yet, Joe. Thanks. Okay, I, I do. You, you piqued my interest um, with the breathing thing here, and that we don't breathe correctly. I don't. I don't know if that was your exact uh, statement or not. But um, I I used to do some breathing and working with people on breathing. Maybe you could explain. I think it's important. Um, what do we fundamentally get wrong about breathing?
4: That is such a good question, especially when it comes to mold. Um, what we get wrong is we don't, we don't inhale down into the belly. So the the most blood or, or oxygen picking up blood that's available in our body is in the lower part of our lungs. So if you're just breathing up here, just enough to kind of get the, to, to survive but not thrive is what I call it. You want to be breathing down into your back and let your belly stick out. And, you know, in our culture, that's all about beauty and being thin and that kind of thing. Like people don't, they hold that area too tight. And so they need to just allow that area to expand and to, to bring the air in. But here's mold's Jedi mind trick
2: <laughs> <laughs> is
4: uh, it affects our breathing when we're asleep. It starts to affect the brain chemistry Um, so that when you're sleeping, you can actually get apnea if you have mold sickness because the brain starts to not feel the need to breathe. The other thing that mold does is our bodies are wise. They know that they're breathing in these toxins and particulate matter and things that that aren't good for it. So you start to under breathe when you're awake. So I see breathing as a really important part to restore health because oxygen is our that's our main fuel. Like if you think about the body and what we need, we need food, water, and air. You can go without food for 30 days and still survive. You can go without water for three days and still survive. You can go without oxygen only three minutes. So that tells you what's the most critical nutrient that we need to be taking in.
1: I also find that people don't focus enough on exhaling. Yeah. And if they exhaled properly, they would inhale properly because you have no choice if you push all that air out of your lower lungs then you have to put it back in so uh, very interesting that you uh mentioned that i i think it's fascinating it's something that a lot of people could learn from so all right let's let's get into the, the diagnosis on on mold because you know um, people have trouble differentiating sometimes between a mold related illness and like you've mentioned sleep apnea um i tend to think that you know some some people don't really have they, they have sleep apnea but it may be because of other exposures and whether it's mold or other you know particulate related exposures how do you go about differentiating between someone that has a mold related issue and some other um, health you know health issue
4: so it it's tough and in clinical practice because you see people with chronic illness that have been sick for so long, sometimes it's the having an illness for so long that's creating more illness. So what I did in, in practice, since I was started in the Lyme world, um, Dr. Horowitz created a Lyme questionnaire that sort of gives you a, a needle of, you know, is this probably Lyme or is it probably not? Um, And so I took that, his lead and created that for mold for myself in clinical practice so that I could kind of quantify Could this be a mold-related illness or are these symptoms something that I haven't investigated yet? Again, like like gut or food allergies or glyphosate or, um, you know, mothballs or other toxic illness issues. Maybe they work in plastics manufacturing and they're getting all of those um, chemicals as they breathe. So it helps me sort of identify when am I possibly looking at a mold sick patient? And I put the questionnaire in my book and if anybody wants it, they can email me. Um, actually there's a, there's a web, there's a tab on my website. If you go to drkrista.com questionnaire, um, you can get the questionnaire and then you can test yourself. Uh, because it is, it is really difficult to say this one symptom is diagnostic of mold. There aren't those, because mold will affect everybody differently depending on your nutrition status and your genetics. There isn't one keynote symptom. Although I would say that most of the people that I work with that are sick from mold have some level of anxiousness or unsettled, uh, which may show up as insomnia for one person and may show up as restlessness for another. Um, Hmm. So, you know, that kind of um, increasing or upping the amperage. Oh, yeah, that's the quiz, too. That's John has a, pulled
1: it up for us. Yeah, yeah. That, so here's um. go ahead.
4: Yeah, this is just my quick quiz if people are just curious. If you're listening, you're like, I wonder if I'm affected by mold. They can go to um, moldquiz.com or go to my quiz on my website. But if you go to um, – you have to key enter it in for the clinical questionnaire because usually that's just doctors that want that. But more and more as I've been talking to people, they're like, no, I want to score myself. I want to find out if – if this could be a problem for me. So you have to do drkrista.com slash questionnaire. It'll get you that questionnaire page and, um, you can get a downloadable questionnaire. The nice thing is, is for, um, if you guys are working with a family as a remediator, um, and they're taking the questionnaire, they can take it after the remediation is done and they've started treatment and it gives them a marker of, remembering how bad it was because that's the beautiful thing about humans we're a little bit like golden retrievers you know like oh it's it's fine it wasn't as bad you know we kind of have a short-term memory for pain Mm -hmm. Um, which is a good thing it's a protective thing but often when I was in practice I would say wow you're really progressing and they would look at me no doctor I still feel terrible and I'm like let's look at the last questionnaire and they'll notice that three or four symptoms are no longer a problem but they forgot because when vague, irritating symptoms go away, you don't notice. You only notice when they come. So hmm. um it's a fun thing to track your progress along the way.
1: Interesting. John, if you could put that back up real quick. I just want to see some of the key maybe point out some of the key questions. Oop, sure, he's yeah. on he's the moved on ways. to the the next one already. John's always a step ahead of <laughs> us. Here. Uh.
4: Yeah when you put your email it should just instantly send it to you. Follow my tech okay. in, Um, and then you can download that PDF if you're a print, if you like to write. Um, so I'm, I'm looking for, I'm working with dif- different practitioners and hospitals to try to scientifically validate this questionnaire and tweak it. So it becomes a real effective tool because mold is so hard to identify. The key things that I see are fatigue, um, anxiousness, like I said, and, and it's not anxiety, that's just restlessness and inner sense of things aren't okay. Um, I also see gut-related issues. So someone will come to me with like an irritable bowel kind of thing or maybe constipation and bloating. So the gut is usually involved somewhere. The sinuses are usually involved. Um, did I hit them all? And then something neurological. So ear ringing or pelvic pain or um, highlighting a neurological thing that you had already. So it might be that you had sciatica but it only ever acts up every so often. Um, pay attention. Were you just in a musty smelling environment after that or before that event?
1: You mentioned ear ringing and I, I, I believe I have tinnitus. I've never been diagnosed with it, but I'm pretty sure I have it. Uh, how is, is that different from ear ringing or are Same they thing. similar?
4: Same thing. Yeah. Same thing. So one of the, one of the class of drugs that are, classic for creating ear ringing is antibiotics and if you think of what antibiotics are they are mold toxins so the different the little you know the the bread the louis pasteur the little green thing of penicillin that he grew there was this ring of um sterile area outside of that and that's what we use for the antibiotics and that's actually a mycotoxin
3: it's inhibition
4: Yeah, it's just amazing. And it's it they're all the microbes are always at war for holding their own space. And, you know, people ask me, I can I can go off on a micoto I want to explain to you where I'm coming from with my approach to treatment. It has to do with that understanding of how the mycotoxins or how the microbes all can either live in a healthy, happy, supportive biofilm or they live in a pathogenic biofilm and that's what is happening with the water damaged building is that it's almost like um it's too many resources so the the molds come into the environment and they have a waterfront they have lakefront property where they normally wouldn't necessarily have that and bacteria want part a piece of that there are some parasites that want a piece of that so there are these um this fight of the microbes to sort of gas bomb you guys already know this gas bomb the other ones out of there the problem is that when human biomes are exposed to those toxins it turns our normal flora which normally if you tested healthy people and sick people you'd find almost the same critters so it's not the critter it's that the critter has now been turned into feeling like it's under threat and now it's going to start acting pathogenically in its normal environment and that's Mm -hmm. why for me i think that treating the sinuses and the body with antifungals is critical for getting your health back.
1: You know, we had, um, we had Dr. David Corey on the show a while back. He's from uh, the VA down in Houston, and he, he does um, – uh, he takes sputum, and then and he has a way of uh, culturing it. That apparently, it's tough to culture sometimes and, and find these fungal infections in sinuses. Do you use something like that to help diagnose a fungal infection?
4: Yeah, it's a little difficult to find a lab that will work with you to culture long enough. So that's one of the challenges that doctors will do a post-nasal culture and they're not comfortable to get, you know, you have to kind of, it's like a flu flu test if everybody's had that. You have to kind of push, you know, a tube way back and then you push a little saline and you suck it back up. So it's not comfortable for the patient. And then if you're sending to a normal lab, the lab won't necessarily be looking for the cast of unusual characters and they won't. Necessarily be using the medium that will grow out that character or culture it long enough. So, yeah, I think Dr. Corey, like, I've, I hope he gets farther with his work and can publish some things so we can create some standards of how to test for these these critters in the sinuses. But, you know, I get a lot of flack on the sinus treatment. People are like, well, you know, if you tested normal people, they would have all those guys in there too. We do actually see Aspergillus occasionally in a healthy person's sinus, but they're not creating mycotoxins. So the Aspergillus is just sort of there in a passerby kind of way, but not um, trying to establish a home.
1: Interesting. I mean, why are you, You're working on getting a group of people working together. Why don't we see more um, cooperation between – I mean, I, I've had the, the – I've probably had 10 or 12 different MDs, NDs, uh, et cetera, on the show – and it it seems like it's tough to have everybody working together. Do you have any idea? Is that, am I wrong on that? Or is it changing? Uh, how are you trying to help change that?
4: Yeah, I hope it's changing. I think that those of us that have been doing what we're doing, when you're getting success and you're seeing really sick people, you are so busy in what you are doing that you forget to teach others. So that's why I created a practitioner training course, because I, I stopped seeing new patients, to make space. So I think part of it is just overworked doctors. And then there, those of us that have been in our littler communities, or maybe our tribe, you know, like for me in the naturopathic world, they know I'm a mold lady. Um, but in your tribe, so you can get kind of beat up about talking about something that doesn't have solid human studies. So unfortunately, there is a, I think, a concerted push to suppress human studies on mold. So we are having, I am having to do translational medicine on my own without a study that says, okay, this worked in animals. I'm going to, I have a high confidence level of safety with this plant or with this nutrient already through my training and my experience. I'm going to try it for this mold sick patient and then see if it brings me results. And that's basically how I've been, you know, I've been experimenting on my patients, but it's with informed, it's informed experimenting, but Mm -hmm. that's how I developed those protocols because there aren't. A lot of human studies so it's easy to pick on me it's easy to say oh you know that's not proven that's not that isn't shown in any kind of human study or human trial it's like then prove me wrong you know let's pay for some studies and prove me wrong so i think when you get beat up <laughs> a little bit i think that makes people a little defensive so i think we all now with ici um the i-s-e-a-i i know you talked with um yes with here about that um, now, with some of these more integrative um, sort of organizations, it really fosters a space for us to share what's working and to help support each other. Like, um, I'm perfectly fine with someone that knows a better way to do this. Um, not, there is no one protocol or approach that's going to work for every patient. Like I said, I have very motivated patients. They know when they come to see me, they're going to get homework. They're, not everybody is up for that. So not everybody can really put up with the protocols that I'm putting them on. Yeah, there's ICI. Yeah. yeah,
1: I was trying to remember what that stands for, the International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness. So you're a part of that group as well?
4: Yep, and also the NAEM. That's where I come from the world. the naturopathic doctors. Um, the beautiful late Dr. Walter Crinian taught me about mold. Um, And that NAEM is another organization and that's started kind of out of the naturopathic medicine world. So it's, it's been very collaborative and sharing and that kind of thing. But I don't think medical doctors conventional medicine hasn't really fostered that approach and it's changing. It's really neat to see. So hopefully things will move more quickly now.
1: Got it. Okay. Yeah. NAEM, National Association yeah. of Environmental Medicine, John. We'll and they
4: have, right. a, they have a conference called the EHS, the Environmental Health Symposium. So if you do EHS, NAEM, that might be easier to find them. But yeah, okay. that's where I started. That's, um, you know, when I first started practice. Um, and I was seeing in my area, we see a lot of lead toxicity. Um, because we're in a lead belt right here, and I was seeing mold and lime, and so I was reaching out to some of these teachers to say, okay, what do I do now? Um, so, yeah, it's, I would love more research, human studies on this, on mold. Well, is, uh,
1: isn't that hard, though, to get human studies? I mean, is, aren't there uh, ethical concerns to some degree? Or
4: Well, not when you're using things that are so safe. You know, the nice thing is that, in in the protocol that I'm using that I'm finding very effective, I rarely have to go to a prescription drug. So these are things with a very high safety profile. They've been used for eons. You know, the most dangerous thing on my list is old man's beard or usnea that can cause some liver problems if you take it continuously. So in my protocol I use it for a period of time and then gives people a break, then a period of time on and on and off. Um, so that's really kind of the most dangerous thing that I use. And that has already, uh, you know, eons of use and high safety profile. So I don't see what the the limitation I think is just money and okay. support, support of our, our philosophical support that these things actually work. But people what? have been sick from mold since, since biblical times, you know, that people <laughs> it's written in Leviticus, you know, it's described there. That wasn't only, they, they didn't, Wait around until they had a drug. They had things that they used.
1: They had to do something. Now, um, what other um, labs do you do? uh, If any, I mean, do you use just a questionnaire? Do you also do some labs with people? What are your thoughts on maybe the visual contrast thing that uh, Dr. Shoemaker uses? Um, Just looking at diagnosing a little bit more before we talk about treatment.
4: Yeah, so for diagnosis, I try to get as many data points as possible because there is no single test either that says, Oh, this is definitely a a current mold issue. And, um, so I will use, and I'll just back up on that. The idea of the the person who's exposed to a water damage building, those toxins in the air or dust air, small particulate that turn on the survival mechanism of the sinus and the gut flora, um, and skin flora for a lot of people, they get skin rashes, Mm -hmm. um, when that gets turned on, then we can see urine mycotoxins. We see mycotoxins if you lavage the sinuses, you'd see mycotoxins in the lungs. Um, but the urine is a pretty standard and low invasive way to find mycotoxins. The problem is that doesn't tell you, is it a current problem or a past problem? Because it could be something where they were exposed to a water damage building it turned on that survival mechanism and now you have your own internal flora fighting with each other. So that's, that's one limitation of the urine mycotoxin testing, although I do do it and I have a handout that I give to people before doing it because the, the one limitation of that is if you have eaten something with mycotoxins, um, then you potentially are looking at what's reflected in that person's food. I do believe though that the, there's an overemphasis on food intake in order to not pay for somebody getting their house remediated, or I think that's a that's a push by people who don't want to pay for or recognize that there really is something called mold illness. Um, so what I do is I have people for three days go off the foods that we know are the most moldy or mycotoxin filled and beverages, and then um, try not to have them do anything that's going to cause a, a disruption to that test before we take the test to try to get the best information that we can out of, you know, minimize the limitations and maximize the strengths of that test.
1: What What um, are those foods and beverages, if you could real quick, just.
4: Sure. sure. So um, beverages are easiest. I'll start with kombucha, any alcohol. So beer creates, you know, it is a yeast, yeast. byproduct. So, you know, we're going to see gliotoxin and things like that. Um, so alcohol, kombucha, and moldy coffee, there is, there's a problem with, with some coffee. So making sure if you are having your coffee, make sure it's been tested for independently tested that it's free of mycotoxins. And then the foods are some of the things that either um, get moldy in storage because of our mass production of food. So that would be corn, potatoes, peanuts, and grains. And then getting rid of foods that are mold themselves, so no cheeses, no mushrooms. And so for those three days, that's kind of the the diet I have them go on so that I know that I've minimized to the greatest extent the limitations of that test or minimized that argument. Um, What about milk? What about milk? I don't know about this.
1: Okay. I'm just curious (laughs) because I know they test milk for aflatoxin because it comes from cows, and I didn't know if that was if there was enough aflatoxin in milk to maybe skew yes. the urine test?
4: That is a good question. I mean, potentially, if you are dealing with a, with a producer, some of the foods that are moldy, then we know it because the animals are eating the moldy food. Um, some of those things are tested and regulated heavily enough that I don't worry about them. It's the sneakers. You know, people okay. don't think about potatoes and corn. But in my area, I, uh, this fall, there was a big pile of corn and it was pouring rain on it. And they just put tarps over the top. Okay. Mm It's going to be some moldy feed, you know? So
2: yeah.
1: Plenty of that. We are, um, we're past halftime. I've got to stop and thank our sponsors. And when we come back, I'd like to talk a little more about treatment and also about um, how you handle inspection and remediation of uh, people's homes. So we'll be back in 90 seconds with Dr. Jill Krista.
2: IAQ Radio Platinum Sponsor is John Don Products where restoration and abatement contractor shop. Visit them at JohnDon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Gold sponsors are Particles Plus Engineers and Manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine. A free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research
1: Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at SiriScience.org. That's C I R I Science.org. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Jill Krista. Before we left, we were we were talking a little bit about diagnosis, and I didn't want to cut short on that either. Uh, you mentioned the urine testing, and I, I'm. I know that can be controversial, um, and one of the things I've heard, and I'm not an expert on this by any stretch of the imagination, is that, that the laboratory that does this can also be important. Have you had different results with different labs?
4: Yes. Yeah, the, the way that I learned about some of the things that can interfere with the testing, like glutathione can potentially, depending on the lab you use, it can actually augment or show a higher level than you really have, or it could show a lower level than you really have. So the way that I learned all of that is I've been doing my own split sample testing and experimenting. Um, I'm working with a lab now to try to figure out some standards of practice so that we aren't left guessing in in clinical practice. Um, But the labs, my favorite technique for urine mycotoxin testing is mass spec. And there are a couple labs that do that um, because I think that that is that's finding a more accurate uh, result for me um, without having the person have to be so restrictive about what supplement they take or whether they provoke or that kind of thing. But it's really, I've been, I think the onus is on the labs to do some research and help us find out. I don't want to be funding that all myself anymore. Uh, You know, uh, that's how I've gotten Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) to. What other labs do you do? If if any, I'm just curious. Do you do any, uh, go ahead
4: hmm Yes. So the, like I said, I, I try to get data points and not spend people's money, too much of their money. But so the VCS test is really useful because it's, it's inexpensive. They can do it from home. Um, and then I also do a regular CBC, which is a complete blood count. That's a very easy thing to do. Typically we'll see some changes on that, that tell us, okay, this, this could be a mold problem because it's starting to create immune deficiency. I also check liver enzymes because mold toxins are liver toxins. So if we see somebody that before the exposure had a lower level and then their liver enzymes start to rise, um, they may be, um, I tell a case in my book that there's this uh, patient of mine that was blamed for being an alcoholic and he had never touched a drop of alcohol, Um, but his doctor was sure he was an alcoholic because he had this liver enzyme that was high Um, And he was like, help me, Dr. Jill, I'm not, I'm not an alcoholic and it turned out he had mold toxin sickness. Um, Mm -hmm. I will also look at um, a stool test if there are a lot of gut problems. And then there's something called an organic acids test that the urine test could be done at the same time as the mycotoxin. And that tells us if the person has some of the, if yeast has now become a, a secondary problem that we have to knock back even more aggressively, and it also tells me what their, their detox status is with glutathione, so I know if I need to be helping things out a little bit. Um, I, I talk about in treatment, you know, we really have to protect the body from all these toxins before we go poking the bear.
1: How, you know, you hear people uh, for, you know, 50 years now, I've heard of yeast infections and people having yeast infections. How does that different? Is that different from... A mold sickness or or is it similar or I'm just not that familiar with yeast infections?
4: Yeah, that's a really important distinction. I think that um, mold and yeast are different critters, um, but mold and mold toxins reduce the body's immune system and, and um, wear down the lining of the intestines and the sinuses. You can have yeast infections in the sinuses. Um, It can destroy that, that barrier. And then the yeast can take over. And it's just like an opportunistic infection. We all, healthy people have candida and have these yeasts in our body, but mold exposure, degrading the lining and reducing our defenses allows candida to take a stronger foothold than it should. So not everybody with mold sickness has candida. Not everybody with candida has mold, but we see them together quite a bit.
1: Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, treatment. And uh, you know we're, we're going to run a little short on time, so if we could kind of get a, an overview of your treatment protocol, and then maybe we'll spend the last fifteen minutes or so talking about inspection and, and uh, remediation of indoor environments.
4: Sure. Uh, so my treatment, I I call it peeling the orange, and I had to come up with something that we do every day that uh, enough people understand. There are two things that need to be done one hundred percent. So that's peeling the the outer orange layer and that white fluffy layer of the orange. And those things are fundamentals and avoidance. Avoidance being the number one. Dr. Kranian taught me the first three treatments for any toxic illness are avoidance, avoidance, avoidance. That's how important avoidance is. So if you think about it, we, we have so many people who try to negotiate. I'm sure you're, you guys see it a lot. IEP see it all the time, people trying to negotiate with you that mold isn't as big a problem as it, as you're saying it is, maybe it doesn't need to be removed. Maybe we don't need to leave the house while we're remediating, you know, they're negotiating all the time. And I think that's mold's Jedi mind trick. Um, When I take the 10,000 foot view between Lyme and mold, both very debilitating diseases, Lyme needs you alive. Lyme is a parasite and it needs you alive. Mold would love to decompose you. So it doesn't need you alive. So in my, in my viewpoint of treatment, Mold is is the chief. We got to take care of that. So avoidance of that exposure is a number one, and I'm very pushy and strict about that. People's stuff takes on mycotoxins in particulate, spores, you know, and they underestimate the um, the negative health effects of this critter. So avoidance and then fundamentals are things that are just Um, like naturopathic basic treatment things. You go to a naturopathic doctor and they're going to talk to you about all the things we talked about earlier. So you've got the outer two layers are avoidance, fundamentals, and then the juicy inside, the sections where you get to pick and choose the tools that work for you are protect, repair, and fight. So meaning that once you have, once you're out of the mold and the avoidance is 100%, you've done the fundamentals, which is foods that are naturally high in their binding capability, Um, foods that are protective of the body getting on a circadian rhythm because mold will mess that up. It makes people um, night owls, which is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, So you get on that circadian rhythm, you get breathing, you get hydrating with the right kind of water. The water that mold sick people need is spring water, things that have a lot of solute in them to try to trap that water in because they don't make, you know, Dr. Shoemaker was the first one to talk about this. They don't make the hormone that holds water in the body. So you have to do it with with kind of salty water. water. Water that's from a spring has more mineral salts in it. So you get those fundamentals and then protect, repair, and fight. That can then be picked and choose which tool you choose based on how you're affected by mold. So protect would be things like really high dose good fats. Mold toxins are fat soluble. So you need to dilute those toxins with good fats. So Dr. Kernian also taught was the solution to pollution is dilution. So you don't just dilute with water. In the case of a fat toxin illness, you dilute with fats. So I have people go on very high dose of good fats and then high bioflavonoids. So those are things that are going to protect the liver and the kidneys and help with detoxification, protect the heart, protect those membranes we talked about that get um, shrunk down and degraded. It protects the brain. Protects the eyes. The eyes get hit really hard with mold, um, and then protects the nervous system. So the combination of good fats and bioflavonoids helps to protect the body and preserve the immune system and nervous system. So that you can make good decisions about how to remediate your house. Um, and then once you, there are certain plants and certain nutrients that that we use to target the weak system. Mold will accentuate your weakness. So it might be something where you need a little more support for your heart. It might be that you need a little more support for bladder. Maybe you're running to the bathroom all the time. So we can pick and choose that repair tool to try to set the stage. And I learned by making mistakes, you don't start poking the bear of the fungal burden in the body until you have all those things laid down and in place. Um, Because once you start poking at mold, it was found that um, Aspergillus that was exposed to amphotericin B kicked up its production of mycotoxins. So you actually start to, it will, it will feel threatened and mold's response to feeling threatened is to make more toxin. So I don't, I don't start on anti antifungals until I have those things laid down. And then in my experience, you need to treat systemically with antifungals to knock the fungal burden down. That's going to be in the gut mostly and then use sinus treatment antifungals to try to knock back that fungal overburden as well. Because low-grade fungal sinusitis is a massive problem with mold illness.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, I'm, I'm That's a nutshell. This. All right. <laughs> Let me ask a couple follow-ups. Um, binding foods. Can you give me an example of some binding foods?
4: Yes. Um, we I went to research on people who have had their gallbladder removed to get this information. So the reason we talk about binding in mold sickness is that those toxins get packaged up in bile and then carried into the intestine to be pooped out. But unfortunately, in the case of toxic diseases, we recycle over 90% of that bile. So you're just going to recycle that toxin back into the liver and it has to reprocess it over again. So it's sort of this definition of insanity, you know, that... I already saw that toxin. Why did you bring it to me again? And it's meant, the system is meant to help us preserve our fat soluble nutrients like vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin E. Um, but it unfortunately also recycles these toxins back, back through like a radiator kind of. So the idea is that when that bile comes into the intestine, we want things that will grab it, um, more aggressively than, than other foods or regular food. So, um, when I went to the research to find what are the things that are proven to help people who've had their gallbladder out because those people have too much bile coming into their intestines and they need that bile to be sopped up by something. And the research is showing us that steamed or cooked kale is very effective for that. (laughs) So it's so cool that we can give someone a food that also nourishes vitamin A and vitamin C Kale is one of the highest nutrient foods for vitamin A and vitamin C, and at the same time, make them better from this mold toxicity. And then there are other binders you can use therapeutically. The danger with using binders for too long is that, remember, the purpose of that recycling is to keep our fat-soluble nutrients. So if you have someone on really intense binders for a long time, um, then they're going to become deficient in these nutrients that are the fat solubles and also the nutrients we use to make bile, so sometimes okay. rather than put someone on a binder i 'll put them on steamed kale, or um, you know there are other binders that i 'll use, and I will have them take something that moves the bile more to try to to um, get them uh, when they're plants they can get that bile moving more in a nourishing way that still feeds glycine and taurine and all these little nutrients that we make um, bile out of. Hmm.
1: Why steamed or cooked versus raw?
4: That was just what they found in the studies that it bound more okay. more bile. So okay. yeah. Again, like I'm I'm in this position of translational medicine. I have to go out and I, I have a you know, who doesn't have a comfort with kale? It's not like you're gonna their only limitation with too much kale is that it can be high in thallium. It's a good chelator of soil. So if the soil is bad that it was grown in. Um but you know, other than that, there aren't aren't really harms to eating kale. so I'm out there looking in the research, what are the things I'm comfortable with? What are things that are working for other applications with this same body system or body fluid?
1: Okay. What's a um, example of good fats?
4: Good fats. So olive oil, avocado, um, fats from nuts like walnuts. Uh, you want to have the walnuts um, still in the shell because that will preserve the fat and keep it from oxidizing and keep it from getting moldy so you can um it's kind of fun you know sit around the table with your family and everybody's it's it's christmas time too it's time to do this you know cracking nuts and eating and playing cards and so you're nourishing your brain um fish is also a good place for good fats so sometimes we will need to in therapeutically we need to put people on very high dose fish oil to get that you can eat it too
1: there you go and and now let me get um, this is one that really intrigues me because I've had my own sinus issues for years. What what are the sinus uh, treatments that you recommend? I mean, uh, you know, I've always used a neti pot, or now I've got the lavage thing, and, and that seems to be, you know, helpful to some degree. What else is good?
4: Yeah, there are so many things that you can do for the sinuses, um, and Again, not not everybody is going to be able to tolerate one treatment over another. So on my list of things, my favorite is essential oils. The reason I love them is they're antifungal and they neutralize mycotoxins. So you're getting a double whammy for that. Not everybody can tolerate them because they are also high in aldehydes, which is what mold secretes in, in normal um, metabolism. So sometimes that's just too much aldehyde for somebody. Um, but I have a video out on YouTube. And it's called the DIY Essential Oil Nasal Spray. And you can make your own. Um, make sure that you're use, you're starting from sterile water so you're not adding more critters um, up into that <laughs> into the war zone. Um, but you can start with a very low amount of essential oils, make your own, and using that two times a day. I also love Manuka honey added to either a neti pot. It is kind of gooey, so you have to warm warm the water ahead of time to get the Manuka to... To mix in, you can add that to a neti pot and honey is fungistatic, meaning it's stopping fungus from growing more. And it also, if you have a lot of really irritated respiratory passages in sinus, essential oils probably sound like I'm like a torture treatment. Then you can go to the honey instead and do something more soothing. Um, hmm. Yeah. So you can use ozone in the sinuses. Uh, Dr. Neil Nathan in his book, he has a, um, information on how to do that. That does take a doctor to make the ozone or ozone generator, um, but it's very effective. So there's tons of things that you can do in the sinuses. My what new about peppermint? favorite, uh, peppermint is pretty strong. I don't know that you're really getting a lot of anti mold activity. It's definitely opening things up because it's a volatile oil. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think you're, you know, there are other things that you could do that have mold, like eucalyptus, that we know have studies that it kills mold and neutralizes mycotoxins. And if anybody wants the, the essential oils are in my book, but I'm happy to share um, the hand, a little, you know, that information, I can take a picture of it in my book. If they Just email me and I can share with you the essential oils that are good for, for killing mold. I talk through which ones those are in the video, but sometimes it's nice to have just a list. Um, yeah, and that's, yeah. I want to share, I, people need these tools.
3: Well,
1: you know, the the wider array of tools in your toolbox, you know, the the more chance you have of finding what works for you. I think, and uh, yeah. you know, I I know, for instance, the, the kale. I'm big on kale and and fish, and uh, you know, I, what about tea tree oil? Do you ever use tea tree oil for any any kind of treatment?
4: Yeah, you bet. Yeah, it's it can be a little irritating. So that's where I mix it in with the other essential oils. Like a lot of times I will use eucalyptus, thyme, and then I kind of spike it with a little tea tree and make that into a nasal spray. Yeah, tea is okay. amazing. And the other, the, I'm just now consulting with a company on um, a product for sinus treatment that um, I, I'm really hoping that our clinical, stu- we're just doing our own clinical studies on people, um, but I'm really hoping that it bears out as being effective and gentle. Um, because it's that's one of the problems I'm seeing with essential oils is while they're very effective, they can be a little too caustic for people, or have those chemicals that people are already sick with. So, um, I'm hoping to have some more information and tools for people as we go along.
1: All right, well, we've got uh, about six minutes left. I know it's a little short on time for for discussion of uh, inspection and um, remediation, but can you give some? So key points, some key tips for doing assessment, um, you know, for IEPs doing assessment out there, how you, you know, with the types of things you suggest they look for? And then uh, maybe a a point or two on remediation.
4: Well, the good news is I don't have a whole lot to say because I'm, I'm a body expert, not a building expert. The building expertise that I've, that I've gained has been with working with Martine Davis, who's in our area, um, very gifted inspector. Um, she's pretty much taught me everything I know and has been gracious to spend a lot of hours on the phone with me saying, yeah, but what about this? What about this? Um, what I, the way I come at this is after working with very sick and sensitive people going through their remediations, I work with my patients very holistically. <clears throat> and I think that, you know, as an IEP, the more holistic you can be, the better. As a naturopathic doctor, I see everyone as an individual, And every building is an individual as well. Every building has its own story has its history, you know, of water damage or no water damage has its history of, you know, who knows what water damage events in the house. So I look for IEPs that are more holistic because I think that they're also understanding that when you're working with a multi-person, you're working with somebody who's pretty sensitive and to be able to trust when a person says, I don't feel good here. And I don't know why. Can you guys figure it out? And now my patients know this about me. I'm kind of a mole canary. So they'll say, can you come for the inspection and come sniff my house and tell them where where to make sure to take a sample? <laughs> so um, I think that that, and interestingly enough, a lot of times that is where we find this hidden problem that who knew that you know, there was two layers of subfloor and the water took a trip down one layer and it it ended up, you know, 10 feet down where you wouldn't think it was coming down the wall. So um, I think trusting, trust the people that live in the space. Um, They're going to seem very hypochondriacal, but they're just really sick and their bodies are telling them where the problem is. So what I've learned in my years of helping with patients with remediations, the most successful and the ones that don't need to be done Are when um, more material was cut than less. So you know, with that, um, at the time that I'm, I was working with like real deep remediation. uh, Our remediators were taking you know two, two feet past visual damage, and those were the most successful. So I try to warn patients that I'm working with to say, tell your remediation company you know, that your inspector wants this remediation, make sure that they're willing to work with your inspector, work as a team, help everybody be accountable to keep you the the most healthy that you can be through this process and end up with a healthy house you can move back into. Um, So I I really just rely on a good inspector and I let them drive the bus from there. And I try to do the ancillary, keep my patient together um, and support them um, from my end, from all the things I can do to support. So taking more than you think though, is, is really important. So that's one thing I counsel my patients, make sure that you're asking for an extra day on the remediation than they think they need pay for it, you know, buy the guy's lunch because they're working in hot suits with respirators and putting their own health on the line, to help you. So pay for an extra day so that nobody's rushed, And they can take more material out than than they think that they have to. Because I think standard is that, you know, you spray it with some kind of mold killing spray. And I've done my own experiments with this one in my own house. And while some of those sprays might work in a research situation, once you get into a unique pathogenic biofilm environment in a house, I've now done this on multiple houses um, where I've asked the remediators to do their do their treatment and their spray, and I'm going to do pre and post testing. And we ended up with two extra species, average, two extra species of mold on that treated wood. So there's something that happens when you're in that pathogenic biofilm environment. So I want to make sure that people are understanding where to best apply spray, where, you know, and when to best take it out. And I, I'm looking forward to more research on your end too, um, you know, and for, for us as doctors to get educated. Because right now we're just, yeah, but uh, there's so many tools we need to we need to all be sharing. I love that you're doing this radio show because then we all share and we know that there's a each of the tools that are out there have a perfect application. So let's use it for that application.
1: You know, it's a, a lot of it is is removal of particulate. Um, Carl Grimes was on a while back. He called it demon dust, and uh, that was not his direct quote. He stole it from someone else, but I. I think he's accurate. Uh, The more dust we can get out, the better. Cliff, um, I want to turn it over to you for any follow-up questions or
3: comments you may have. I just have one. Um, Doctor, you mentioned unhappy and happy biofilms, and I was just wondering if you could give us an example of a happy biofilm.
4: A happy biofilm we normally have in our gut and sinuses. We, we call it the microbiome. You know, we're finding that that's so much more than just what bacteria you have living there. It has to do with what fungus are living there. And, you know, we have some parasites that are travelers through that induce certain kinds of immune boosting effects. Um, so that a healthy body is, is basically the result of a healthy biome. And that's what I think of as a as our biofilm—the whole lining of our intestines and our sinuses, our respiratory passages have these symbiotic and helpful critters. Um, even though Candida's there, you know, even though some of these other guys that that become opportunistic infections. So, trying to make sure that the the right critters in the right space in the right proportion, and that things are working. Um, symbiotically to share information about the body to help the immune system stay strong and keep the barriers up. Pathogenic, then everybody starts acting on their own for themselves, kind of like Americans. (laughs) That You know, we've kind of lost that community thing where we are all lifted up by the whole.
3: The, The trivia question, did you get a correct answer? Oh, yeah, we always do. We have world's smartest audience. It takes them seconds. Let uh, us do, know. You, you, you want, what was you want... the correct answer? Oh, the, the correct answer was in 1962, following the deaths of 100,000 young uh, turkey poults in the UK, uh, the term was was first used. Very and, good. I mean, I've got, I, I've got a whole history of it. Uh, we have really, really smart people. John... Lapoteer got it today. Uh, Doug Conan added a bunch of information. Uh, It's, I mean, they they typically get it, you know, within a minute or whatever. (laughs) Amazing, smart, smart people.
4: Yeah.
1: Well, Doctor Jill Krista, anything you'd like to add before we wrap it up? I I really enjoyed having you and uh, enjoyed the conversation. It's it's great to to see other people that are working to try and figure this puzzle out.
4: Yeah, I don't think I really do. I just, if anyone wants, I have a ton of video blogs out there. If I learn something new or if I get uh, enough of the same question, I'll shoot off a video. They're a minute or less, so they're really easy to digest. It's like junk food, mold junk food. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's on my website on video blogs, um, also on YouTube. So um, And if people have questions, they can they can send me an email and I'll try to do a video blog on it. Um, I know my perspective and my way of coming at this is different than what a lot of people have heard. So um, I'm excited to have the opportunity to talk about it.
1: and it's great. We're excited to have you and great way to finish out the year. Uh, We will have a blog uh, that will go out. Probably after the holidays. I don't. Well, I don't know, Cliff. We'll see. Maybe I can get it out on Tuesday because uh, that would be a good piece of reading for people over the holidays. So, Cliff will send it to you, and then you can take a look at it, make sure everything's okay, and we'll we'll get it out for our listeners. Uh, we're going to take a couple weeks off for the holidays. We'll, we'll be back, I believe, the second Friday in January with the next episode of IAQ Radio. I want to thank Dr. Jill Krista for joining us. I want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlatnik, and, of course, at the controls, John you got to have faith. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, and uh, we'll, we'll see you all. Have a great holiday and uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year and all that fun stuff. We'll see you in a couple of weeks with the next episode of I A Q Radio Plus. For I
0: A Q Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.